friend recently sent me a video of a guy who played a practical joke on a computer repairman. He called the computer repairman to come over and work on his desktop, desktop computer tower. But before the repairman got there, he opened the computer and he took several cans of beans and he poured it into the computer and then he closed it back up. And so when the repairman got there and he opened it up, he was obviously shocked. He said, oh my gosh, sir, come over here. I'm going to show you something I've never seen before in my life. (laughs) And of course, the man played along and he looked inside and he was just kind of like, what? He said, what? This isn't supposed to be in a computer. (laughs) And he kept saying, for some reason, instead of these are beans, he kept saying, this is beans. He said it over and over again. And the person played dumb. He said, oh, so that, that doesn't help it run or... He said, no, this is, this is not supposed to be the computer. Someone sold you a computer filled with beans. He said, this is food. And so after he kind of had his laugh, I'm sure the, the, the repairman figured out what was going on. But, you know, no one would expect a computer filled with beans to function properly. Well, more importantly, we shouldn't expect a person with an ungodly heart to exhibit godliness. What's in our heart matters. What's in our heart matters. In the passage that was just read, we heard the well-known verse, 23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Our heart is the source of everything that we do. It's the control center of our lives. And so, how do we develop a godly heart? That's the question that we're going to seek to answer this morning. How do we develop a godly heart? But how do we study the book of Proverbs? As Drew last week and Chase before that have, have mentioned, Proverbs is a, somewhat of a, an anomaly because it, it's hard to study as we normally would a book by just walking through a passage. In Proverbs, the topic seems to change at every verse. And so in studying Proverbs, we shouldn't take one proverb on any particular topic and construct our whole theology on that topic from that one verse. Instead, we should look throughout Proverbs on all the Proverbs and all Scripture and how they speak to a particular topic. And as we put all those verses together, we hold up that topic and look at the different perspectives offered in Scripture and throughout Proverbs, and we hold it up like a diamond. And we see the different perspectives and how it looks different in every facet of wisdom. And that's how we should study Proverbs, looking at different topics and themes looking at the different verses that have to do with those topics, and then we can truly become wise. We look at it like a diamond. And so that's what we're going to attempt to do in this time on the topic of the heart. But we're going to start in verse 423. That's going to be sort of our home base. Keep the heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And here's the main point of this sermon and the main point of this theme of the heart in Proverbs. The heart is the source of everything that we do. And so, it must be guarded vigilantly. The heart is the source of everything that we do. And so, it must be guarded vigilantly. And here's where we're going, just to give you uh, an understanding of where we're headed. Four points, the importance of the heart first. And then replacing the heart. Then guarding the heart. And finally, the heart of godliness. So first, the importance of the heart. What is the importance of the heart? Well, the word for heart appears 46 times in the book of Proverbs. That's kind of a lot. 46 times in Proverbs. It's a heavy emphasis in Proverbs. 
The word for heart appears 858 times in the Old Testament. There's a heavy emphasis on the heart. And as I mentioned, we start with this verse 423, keep the heart or guard it, watch it with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Now later we're going to talk about guarding the heart, watching it, keeping it. But first I actually want to look at the second half of that verse, for from it flow the springs of life. What does that mean? What does it mean that from our hearts flow the springs of life? Well, one commentator, Bruce Walkie, wrote that to the Hebrews, the Jews, the heart was understood as the center of a person's thinking. The heart thinks, reflects, and ponders. He wrote, the heart is the center of all of a person's emotional, intellectual, religious, and moral activity. In other words, the heart is the source of everything that we do. The heart is the source of everything that we do. And that's what Jesus taught in Luke 6.45 when he said the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. What comes out of our mouth and the deeds in our life is an overflow of our hearts. Paul Tripp has pointed out that um, you know, oftentimes when we say sort of insensitive things or harsh words, we'll often say, oh, I didn't mean that. But that's actually not accurate. Paul Tripp points out that biblically speaking, it'd be more accurate to say, sorry, I didn't mean to say what I was thinking. But this is, this is a problematic thought, isn't it? It's unnerving that what we say and do comes from our hearts. We would rather our problems be outside of us. We'd rather be able to say, oh, it's our circumstances or it's the people around us. The last thing in the world we want to admit is that 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 came directly from my heart, the core of who I am. We are the problem. That's an unnerving thought. Legend has it that in 1908, the Times in London asked several authors to write articles on the topic of what's wrong with the world. And apparently they reached out to Christian writer G.K. Chesterton. And apparently Chesterton wrote back an article. He only used 14 words in his article. He wrote, Dear Sir, regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am. Yours truly. We are the problem. Our hearts are the problem. And like it or not, our hearts are are actually the most accurate picture of who we are. This is what Proverbs 27:19 means when it says, as in water face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. The heart of a person reflects that person most accurately. And that is a scary thought, is it not? I remember years ago hearing a Christian in a Bible study say, you know, you are who you really are when you're with your family. <laughs> there might be some very convicted people in this room right now. You are who you really are when you're with your family. Well, why? Because when, with your, when you're with your family, you let your guard down, right? You don't put up any false exteriors. Who you are flows uninhibited from you. In other words, you let your heart out. Your, art, your heart truly comes out when you're with your family. The heart matters because from it flow the springs of life. It is the source of everything we do. 
But there's another reason the heart matters. The heart matters because Scripture is clear that God cares about the heart. God sees the heart, our motives, our intentions, and He actually judges the heart. And so Proverbs 24, 12 says, If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? In other words, God sees the heart. You can say whatever you want. God knows exactly what is in your heart. Or 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Do not pass judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden and dar- in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Or Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. The word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and disclosing the purposes and thoughts and intentions of the heart. These verses, and there are more, make it clear that God cares about the heart. He watches the heart. He judges the heart. And here's the bad news. Our hearts are hopelessly corrupt, as we've probably already been convicted by the fact that everything we do flows from the heart. Our hearts are hopelessly corrupt. We don't just need a heart makeover. We need a heart transplant. We will die without one. And that's our next point, replacing the heart. In the movie John Q., Denzel Washington plays a father named John Q., whose son has a heart condition that causes his heart to um, become enlarged. And frustrated with the insurance and medical process, uh, John Q. actually hijacks the hospital and takes several hostages until his son can get operated on. And in one heart-wrenching part of the movie, the doctor explains the bad news to John Q. He says, John, you must accept the inevitable. And John Q. says, what's that? And the doctor says that your son is going to die. Of course, John Q. refuses to accept that. Our hearts are corrupt, and without God, they are fatally corrupt. The problem is deadly. Proverbs 11.20 says, Those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's one of the reasons we as Christians give ultimate authority to God's word and not our hearts. They're desperately sick. Isaiah 64 tells us that even our good deeds are a polluted garment because they're often stained with false and sinful motives that can't justify us. And Jesus taught in Mark 7, 15 through 19, that it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but what comes out of him. Our hearts are what make us unclean. From our hearts flow sin. Our hearts are the problem, and the problem is deadly. Because Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. We have sinful and corrupt hearts. And it's not just, oh, that's too bad. It's not like jaywalking. It's not, not great, but is it really a big deal? It's a deadly problem. The wages of sin is death. We need new hearts. 
We need new hearts that will long for God and obey Him. And praise be to God, that is exactly what He gives us. In Ezekiel 36, God explains what He's going to do for His people. And in this passage that I'm sure you've heard before, in verses 25 to 27, He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In John 3, Jesus explains that the only way to receive his spirit and thus this new heart is to be born again by believing in Jesus, that he is God, that he came and died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for our sins and that he rose from the dead conquered the grave and ascended to heaven. And now if we trust in him, our sins are forgiven and we are reconciled to God. We can have a personal relationship with him. We are born again spiritually. And he puts his spirit in us. He gives us this new heart that desires him. Jesus said in John 3, 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Well, by nature, we are of the flesh. And that's why we desire things of the flesh. We desire sinful things in our hearts. We must be born again spiritually by trusting in Christ. And then and only then are we given this new heart. It's his spirit placed within us. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. We become new creations. We're given new hearts. And so spiritually speaking, we are all on a wait list for a heart transplant. The problem is deadly. We will die without a new heart eternally. And yet God, by his mercy and grace, has provided a new heart for us. For anyone who trusts in Christ, they are made into a new creature, given new hearts. He will fill them with his spirit and give them a new heart to love and obey him. And so because of that offer, because that offer is on the table, that God offers to give us a new heart to all who trust in him, we have three options. We can respond in one of three ways to that offer. One, we can reject God, ignore our hearts, and die in our sins. Two, we can accept God, ignore our hearts, and become hypocrites. Or three, we can accept God, guard our hearts, and become truly godly. So let's just look at each of those options. Number one, we can reject God, ignore our hearts, and die in our sins. Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, you know, Mike, I don't know if I need God to be good. I don't know if I need God to be wise. But all of us would admit that our hearts are perverse on some level, and clearly Scripture teaches that. And no amount of self-control can make our hearts better can make our hearts righteous. Not one person in this room or in the world would admit to be perfect, not in word or deed, and especially not our hearts. And the way I can prove that is just by asking a show of hands is, who would like a monitor hooked up to their brain displaying for all to see all of their thoughts and their heart's desires? Any takers? Anybody? (laughs) No, absolutely not. We would have zero friends. Because all of us know that our deeds and our words are corrupt, but our hearts are as well. 
But even if someone were to embody much of wisdom, to live a, a good life outwardly, well, if you're not a Christian, you've neglected the most important facet of wisdom, and that's establishing a relationship with God. He's the very heart of wisdom. So people might grant, gain great wealth in this world. They might excel in their careers, but they've forfeited their souls. How wise could someone be who has abandoned a relationship with the God of the universe, which nothing else in this world could compare with? How wise could that person truly be said to be? What if someone uh, claimed to be very good with money, and they were very disciplined with their spending, they never went over budget, they paid all of their bills on time, but in the late 90s, they invested uh, 90% of their savings in Enron. And then after that collapsed, years later, they said, okay, I'm going to put everything into Lehman Brothers. And then after that collapsed, they scrounged together. In 2012, 2013, they said, Blockbuster's the next investment. <laughs> and they went all in, put everything in Blockbuster. In the final analysis, would you conclude that that person was good with money? Well, likewise, someone who appears successful and wise and disciplined outwardly could not be said to be wise if they haven't done the single wisest thing they could do in this life, place their trust in Christ and begin a relationship with God. Even if you can get by in this life, moderately successful, leading a somewhat happy life in the eyes of the world, you still would be separated from God in this life and in the next. One author said this, every person is born looking for someone who is looking for them. If you're not a believer this morning, I want to tell you, that person is God. He's looking for you. As the old hymn says, somebody is calling out your name. Do you hear him calling you this morning? Let me ask you a question. Do you have peace? Do you have life and life to the full? Because that's what Jesus promises those who come to him. He says in John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. He says, come, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Do you have that? Do you have peace? I remember before I was a Christian, hearing a song, a Christian song that mentioned peace. And I asked my friend who was a Christian, what is that? Do you have that? How would you describe peace? I was desperate for it. I wanted peace. I wanted peace in my heart. Peace with God. Peace in my soul. I didn't have it. And it wasn't until I understood the gospel and I trusted in Christ that I truly had peace. Zephaniah 3.17 says, God will quiet you with his love. Have you ever been so content that you didn't, you didn't need to say anything? Maybe it's just a beautiful day. You're sitting there looking at a, a gorgeous sunset. Maybe you have your family around you. You feel the warmth of the sun. Maybe you just had a good meal. You're satisfied. You're full. You're content. Just 
You don't need to say anything. Maybe you couldn't say anything. Do you have that in life? Do you have that every day? Only God can give that. Only God can quiet you with his love. As Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. Trust in Christ. Come to him. He's calling out your name. But there's a second option. The first is we reject God, ignore our hearts, and we die in our sins. But the second option is we can accept God, can believe in him, but we ignore our hearts and become hypocrites. Now, sometimes we as Christians are painfully aware of the fact that our hearts do not line up with God's Word. And that's not, um, that's not being hypocritical. That's giving ultimate allegiance to God's Word. We are mourned by that. We say, oh, I don't want my desires to be that, but Lord, I see this is what your Word says, so I'm going to obey that. That's not hypocritical. That's giving ultimate loyalty and allegiance to God's Word, which we rightly should do, right? In our culture, the highest authority is our heart. Follow your heart. That's the refrain. We don't believe that as Christians. We believe follow God's Word. So that's not being hypocritical. But there is a problem. It is problematic when Christians aren't mourned over the dissonance between their heart and God's Word. It's a problem when we are perfectly happy when our obedience is a performance. It's a problem when we see sinful desires in our heart and that doesn't bother us because outwardly everybody thinks that we're godly. That's a problem. And it leads to deadly hypocrisy. The most famous instance of someone taking this option, the second option, was the Pharisees. They practiced their righteousness before men and sought to look good outwardly so that they could maintain their positions. And Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. In Matthew 23, 25 through 28, he said, You clean the outside of the cup, but inside is full of greed and self-indulgence. You are like whitewashed tombs. Outward appear beautiful, but inside are full of dead people's bones. Outwardly you appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The Pharisees clearly loved the praise of man more than the praise of God, and that didn't seem to bother them. They accepted God. They believed in God, but they denied that Jesus was God. But then they ignored their hearts, became hypocrites. And a well-known instance of this kind of hypocrisy in our own country was slavery. In fact, uh, Francis Grimke was a reformed African-American pastor in Washington, D.C. in the late 1800s. And in one of his sermons, he specifically calls out Christians who did nothing to combat that evil of race prejudice. He convictingly asked this question, is the attitude of the average Christian on race prejudice consistent with the gospel they believe? We must watch our hearts, right, in all areas to guard against sin that would be inconsistent with the gospel, whatever that may be. We might think, oh, as long as I'm not doing anything really wrong, I'm fine. But that limits our pursuit of righteousness to avoiding the big noticeable sins, right? And it causes us not to watch our desires, our hearts. But there's a third option. First option, we can reject God, ignore our hearts, and die in our sins. Second option, we can accept God, ignore our hearts, and become hypocrites. Or the third option, we can accept God, guard our hearts, 
and become truly godly. And that's our third point, guarding the heart, guarding the heart. Assuming we take the third option as Christians because the first two options we clearly must reject as Christians, well, then that means we are to guard our hearts. And so we've looked at the second half of Proverbs 4.23, that from it flow the springs of life, the importance of the heart. Now I want to look at the first part of that verse. Keep your heart with all vigilance. We are to keep our heart. And so what, is that, what does that mean, to keep? Well, the Hebrew word for keep is nestor, meaning to uh, keep watch over, to guard. Think of a watchman or a night watchman uh, actively watching for enemies. We are to do that with our hearts. One commentator wrote this, since the heart is the, cons- uh, is the center of all of a person's emotional, intellectual, religious, and moral activity, it is to be safeguarded above all things. If the heart is the source of everything that we do, and if God looks and judges the heart, it is to be safeguarded above all things. We naturally guard and protect what we value, don't we? I remember when our family lived up in Maryland, we lived not too far from Camp David, the President's Retreat Center. And if we were camping or out for a drive, we would be near Camp David. And what's interesting about it is there would be wooded areas that even though you knew Camp David was on the other side of that wooded area, and you could kind of see it, it looked very normal. Did it look like an average sort of place that you would see in the woods on a hike, uh, except for the fact that there would be a fence? However, if you were to, you know, get out of your car and start walking toward that fence, you would quickly make the acquaintance of several people, <laughs> and probably quite aggressively. It might not have looked like it was guarded, but it most certainly was guarded heavily. And that is what we must do to our hearts. We must watch. We must guard it heavily. And so how do we do that? How do we guard our hearts? What does it mean to keep our hearts with all vigilance? Well, it's three things. We watch and pray, we repent, and we fight. How do we guard our hearts? We watch and pray, we repent, and we fight. First, we watch and pray. We watch our hearts, and then we pray and ask God to help us watch them. And Scripture is full of great examples of this. So think of Psalm 139, 23-24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Beautiful prayer. David is watching his heart. He's saying, Lord, help me. Reveal any grievous way in me, anything in my heart that I can't see, that I can't perceive. Or Psalm 19, very similar. He says, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let that be our prayer. We must watch our hearts and ask God, pray and ask him to help us watch them. And one of the ways that we actually watch our hearts is by watching what we pray for. It's by watching our prayer life. Because what we pray for reveals, in many ways, what's in our heart. That's why J.I. Packer wrote that prayer is the measure of a man spiritually in a way that nothing else is. And that's because our prayers reveal what our hearts want, one author said. If we were to go into your secret prayer life, into your devotional life, what kind of prayers would we find? They just be prayers, be more self-oriented for health, for material things? Or would we find prayers for others? Prayers for the church, 
Prayers for the world. Prayers praising God for his goodness. Prayers asking God for more of God. John Owen, in his book, Communion with God, said that true Christians and hypocritical Christians actually appear very similar outwardly. But then he said, go into their secret prayer life and oh, what a difference there is. In private prayer, saints hold communion with God. Owen says they are sweetly wrapped up in the love of their Father. Whereas hypocrites, for the most part, are wrapped up with the world and the lust of the flesh. And so guard your heart and its desires by watching your prayer life. Train yourself to delight in the Lord that he might give you the desires of your heart. Ask for more of God in your prayers. Let our prayers be like the psalmist when he asks, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever and gaze upon his beauty. let Let our prayers be filled with prayers like that. So we must watch our hearts, watch and pray, ask God for help, but we also must repent of our hearts. It's the second way that we guard our hearts. You know, we're perhaps used to confessing for sins that are outward, right? Things that we do and say, but we should also learn to repent of our heart's desires and motives. Uh, One pastor, Tim Keller, said, Christians learn to repent not just of our bad deeds, but they also repent for the reasons they do good deeds. So let your repentance go deeper. Confess sins to God not only for what you do and say, confess to him desires of your heart that you know are not in line with his word. The deeper your repentance, the more magnified God's grace will be to you. And we don't go on sinning that grace may abound, as Paul condemns in Romans, but we should examine our sin in our hearts so that we realize how much God's grace has abounded in our lives. We should search our hearts and repent for it. Now, this might be paralyzing for some, I will admit, hearing about how we sin not only in word and deed, but in our hearts. You might fear doing anything because sin is all around you and in your heart. But brother or sister, I would encourage you, don't be paralyzed by fear because of the sin of your heart. Yes, you sin every day. And yes, even your good works are stained with sin so that they cannot justify you. But God loves you. God has justified you by sending Jesus Christ to live the perfect life in word, deed, and motive and heart that you could never live. He died on the cross and paid for all of your sins, both outwardly and inwardly, and he's justified you. Your standing with God doesn't depend on your good works or your good motives or your pure heart. It depends on the righteousness of Christ. But it actually goes further because Christ not only justifies us, he actually sanctifies our good works to the Father. Jesus not only died for all of our sins, he died for our imperfect motives for the good things that we do. So that by the blood of Christ, all of those things wash away. So the only thing that remains is what's good of the good works that we have done. And it's a pleasing fragrance to the Father. Think of someone panning for gold, right? 
<clears throat> when you are painting for gold, they get a big scoop of the earth in that pan. And even if there's a huge gold nugget in there, it's going to be obscured by the dirt and worthless rocks and imperfections that are in there. But as the water begins to rinse over the pan, the other imperfections, the dirt, the worthless rocks, rinse off. They fade away till it only that gold nugget is left. Well, as we are washed by the blood of Christ through faith, the imperfections of our works are washed away by his mercy, leaving only that which is pleasing to God. So don't be paralyzed. The Father loves you. He is pleased by your efforts to obey him. Don't fear him. Move toward him in love because he rolls waves of his love over you. But we also must fight sin. We watch and pray, we repent, but we also fight sin, and we must fight sin at the heart level. If the heart is the source of everything that we do, then we must fight sin at the heart level, right? We must go to the root, because all of our sins flow in some way from misordered desires in our heart. The biblical word for that is idolatry. We have idols of the world. Andy Davis said this not too long ago, in a sermon, sins are the things that we do when Christ isn't enough. All of our sin flows from a misordered desire. That's why D.A. Carson wrote that if we obeyed the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, then we naturally obey the rest of the commandments. No problem, right? But we don't obey that first commandment perfectly. We are often enticed by the things of this world, and we love them in our hearts more than Christ, and that leads to sin. And that's why whenever we sin, we should ask the question, what was my heart really desiring there? If you sin in word, if you speak harshly to your friend or spouse or parents, don't just say, oh, I shouldn't do that anymore. Ask, ask the second and third level question. Why did I do that? What was my heart desiring in that moment more than Christ that I then sinned outwardly? Peel back the layers and begin looking at the true problem, the source of the sin the sin beneath the sin. And only when we do that, only when we get to the heart, can we begin applying the solution. And what is that solution? Well, that's our last point, the heart of godliness. The heart of godliness. We must search our hearts, see what we are desiring more than Christ, and then we must apply the solution, the antidote to our hearts. And what is that solution? The love of Christ. The love of Christ. See, Jesus Christ is the heart of godliness. Jesus is the heart of godliness because he is God. He is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15, the exact imprint of his nature, Hebrews 1.3. He was tempted as we were in every way, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. And yet, though he deserved blessing, he died in our place. He was perfect in word, in deed, in heart, in motive. His heart is full of love. He is the heart of godliness. Christ is the very heart of godliness. And if we are to have a heart of godliness, then our hearts must be filled with the love of Christ. Christ is the heart of godliness. And if we are to have a heart of godliness, then we must fill our hearts with the love of Christ. Consider this question that John Piper was once asked. If you had all the latest machinery in a sophisticated science lab, 
what would be the most effective way to get air out of a glass beaker? It's kind of a trick question because the solution wouldn't require any advanced technology. You simply fill the beaker with water. If the beaker is filled with water, it can't be filled with air. Well, the most effective way to stop our hearts from loving the world is to fill our hearts with the love of Christ. And that is the point of Thomas Chalmers' famous sermon, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. He says our, our hearts can't simply be emptied. They demand content. Our hearts must be filled with something. And as we remember the love of God for us, our hearts are filled so much with the love of Christ that they can't be filled with the world. And then we respond in godliness. I mentioned the movie John Q earlier. Well, after the doctor tells him that his son will die without a heart transplant, in a moving scene, John Q, father, says, okay, then take mine. And to the shock of people around, he threatens to take his own life so that they can take his heart and give it to his son. He says he needs a heart. Someone has to die. I'm his father. It's me. Now, where have we heard that before? Why is that so familiar? Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, when we had corrupt hearts, when we were rebels, when we were enemies of him, hating ourselves and hating one another, when we deserved death, Christ died for us. We needed a new heart. Without one, we would die. And God, our Father, so loved us that he gave his only Son think about that. To give your child, your son or daughter, who you love more than anything, that would be more agonizing than death itself. And yet he did it. He did it for you. Try to wrap your mind around the incomprehensible love of God the Father for us in Christ. And Jesus became obedient to death, even death on a cross, in our place. And therefore, he's been given the name that is above every name. The, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God has given his son for us. He's given us a new heart. Trust in Christ. Believe in him. Receive that new heart. And if you have trusted in him and believe the gospel, then guard that new heart. Pray for it. Watch it. Repent for it. And above all, fill it with the love of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let it overflow to the power of the Holy Spirit. That our hearts might respond in love to God and grow in true godliness. Let's pray. Lord God, we are overwhelmed at your generosity, at your grace, at your goodness to us, that you would move toward us 
in such incomprehensible love, in such wonderful, majestic love, Lord. You quiet us by your love. We were hopeless. We are corrupt. And yet, Lord God, you offer us a new heart. You grant that you would place your spirit within us, grow us in our love for you. Lord, help us to watch our heart. Help us to keep it with all vigilance and help us to fill it with your love for us that we might desire you and love you more than anything and truly grow in godliness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.